Hello, dreamers, and welcome to another edition of the Dream Nation Love Podcast. I'm your host, Yulia. I hope you're doing well in these crazy, wild, surreal times. I'm doing okay, just hanging in there, just trying to get work through, and just trying to keep myself busy. And uh, I really loved speaking to comedian Tony Nash. Nash like massage. (laughs) And I hope you enjoy the podcast as well. She's an award-winning stand-up comic, writer, and filmmaker. Her satire is philosophical in nature and focuses usually on current events, social change, and cannabis advocacy. And of course, we talked about all of those things on the podcast. She's really, 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 really funny, and she's written, edited, directed, and acted over 50 sketch comedy videos that together have upwards of like 2 million views. She's the bomb. Her production company is called CaveLightProductions.com. You can check it out. And, you know, like she doesn't do enough in her day. She's also a freelance writer for a salon, alternate, Huffington Post, Hairpin, Thought Catalog, and many more. And you can check out her sketch comedy at TonyBologna.com, which is T-O-N-I-B-O-L-O-G-N-A.com, which has over 50,000 monthly hits. Naj has her BA in philosophy and has been a political activist focusing on voting rights and political engagement since she graduated from Sarah Lawrence College, which has been a huge influence on her comedy, so you can tell she's a Sarah Lawrence girl. Share this podcast with some friends who also love hearing comics speak. I try to give female voices a voice on this show because as we know it's hard to break in to comedy being a woman because you know you've got people like louis ck whipping it out and uh all the other guys i won't even mention because it's not even worth it so all we can do is uh light our light and shine it and uh, hang out with like-minded people so sit back and enjoy the show have a great day Yeah. Thank you for being on the show. We made it work. How do I pronounce your name? Is it Tony Naj or Nagi? Oh, you're right. It's Naj like massage. Naj like massage. Yeah. <laughs> and Tony's and like baloney. That's amazing. Yeah, I've been following your work on Instagram probably for like the last year and you've just started cranking out all these funny videos. Oh, that's so fun. It's so interesting to meet your social media friends because they're kind of your most like loyal artistic supporters, I find. Right? I love connecting with people like the people I connect with for my podcast. It's really interesting who is listening to the show and who messaged me because like some people don't follow me on Instagram and they just listen to the show. Like I have like about 7,000 listeners for the podcast and I don't really know like any of them. Sometimes I'll get like a Twitter message like, you know, but then on Instagram, that's when like people really find you and they like seek you out and they like want to talk and like be friends. <laughs> yeah, I know. That's why that's kind of the best thing about it, because I feel like your actual human friends, you know, they don't always want to like consume your content. <laughs> so right? it's interesting. These like strangers become your most strangely like supportive friends, even though you've never met them. Isn't that amazing? Like, I'm like, oh my God, I've got a zillion friends from work, like 2000 friends. I'm like, if all my friends from work and like all my real life friends actually fucking promoted my shit, it would be like huge. But all I have is like random strangers who are like, this stuff is really great. And I'm like, okay, aside from my mom, like, where are all of you? (laughs) I'd relate to that on a deep level. Isn't it? Isn't it funny? Like I've got a crowdfunding platform and that's like a big part of the crowdfunding platform, right? If you want to make a crowdfunding campaign go, you ask your friends, but then you also have to realize that only like 10% of your 
like maybe even 4% of your friends will actually like do it. It's, it's usually like strangers and friends of friends and like people who discover you and are like, Hey, this is cool. I tend to support any crowdfunding campaign that ends up in my email box because I'm just like, okay, whatever it is, I feel like energetically it's really important. So I've been a part of like so many like really random crowdfunding campaigns. And then like every like two years later, you'll get your package or whatever they promise you. And I'm like, what is this? Like I have no context or memory of what I even was a part of. I think I'm still getting something from like some Noam Chomsky Kickstarter. Still, I say, yeah, I said, I try to support friends whenever I can. It's really hard, you know, and I think it's, it's hard, like probably with you too. You have a lot of friends and everybody's like, support my thing, go to my thing. And it's, it's hard to be everywhere. Yeah. And and the internet makes us be here. (laughs) You know, I mean, it's interesting because it's like, everything's also expected to be free now. You know, like music is free, video content is free. Like, you know, there's very few like subscription things that I pay for, you know, maybe like Spotify, but then I expect so much like hard work to be given to me for free. And I think think even as a creator, I still like, I'm like, what? Like, um, you know, Russell Brand switched his podcast to, um, luminary or something and i'm like Mm -hmm. i I used to listen to it all the time and i'm like nope not (laughs) and it's funny like the cultural expectation is really perverted our relationship to like how we consume and pay for content that's like a whole entire discussion in itself right i think that is so interesting about the effect that technology is having on the creative class like personally as a creative director in advertising i just find my deadlines getting shorter and shorter and then like i have to produce work for like all these channels it's no longer a print ad and a tv ad it's like youtube channel and like that's like a whole discussion about the creative class being burned out and like you and i consume on spotify but they're back channel deals happening on spotify where the artists still get paid but then that money that trickles down to the artist's is way less, even though I don't really see how that's happening because now they have more exposure and like more clicks as opposed to like back in the day where you have mixtapes and MTV and now you have more channels. So I'm like, how did the price of art go down when exposure went up? Like that does not make any sense to me. Well, because we're also willing to prostitute ourselves for exposure because I think we still assume that exposure means dollars and it really doesn't anymore. And I think that psychologically we haven't really caught up to the business models that are actually existing because, you know, people are getting pennies, I think, per song. It's really, really low. And when you used to buy a CD, like that granted there was the gatekeepers of the record companies and those gatekeepers like kept us from experimenting or having access to art that wasn't filtered through the taste of record labels. I still think there is this major challenge of like, how do you have a living as an artist or creator if you're not under the wing or umbrella of like an economic force, like a record label or, you know, a movie studio There's less censorship, but there's also less opportunities, like financial opportunities, but there's more cultural opportunities. It's a balance. I also think there are a lot more opportunities if you're not saying anything important. Like if you're just like Khloe Kardashian and just being like, makeup, oh my God, oh my God, makeup. You're talking about like non-divisive things and non-political issues. There's a lot more opportunity to monetize or as opposed to you're like, I'm speaking for the working class and like 
I'm speaking for the underrepresented where people are just like, oh boy, ooh, ooh, that's a sensitive topic. Yeah. And I, I mean, like, it's interesting the women in on Instagram, like in terms of the, the wage gap, it's like acting, pornography, and Instagram influencer is the only place where women like out earn men almost like all the time. It is a somewhat like feminist ecosphere that, you know, women are able to like have these economic opportunities, but yet at what cost? Because they're promoting like a really specific vision of femininity that's based on beauty as your value. So it's like women are encouraged to reinforce very like patriarchal and sadly like superficial visions of of themselves and they get financially rewarded for it. So it's, it's a contradiction because it's like, oh, yay, women are doing shit, but it's like, uh. you know, it goes back to archetypes, right? Like the women who are showing their butts on Instagram, like I can, I've got a great ass. I can show it. (laughs) I've got a great ass. I can show it, but that's not my thing. Like, but if you think about it, that's like really back to like the most basic primitive, like reptilian human cortex of like, I've got a butt, I've got hips, I can breed. And it all goes back to like this, no matter how advanced our technology is going to get, like we're going to have holograms and transport, whatever next level is going to be, there's still going to be like butt selfies and everything because it still goes down to like this really primitive level. Yeah. And also it's like, the butt selfie or the exploitation of beauty is rewarded. That is hard to reject because it's giving women a platform and that platform is their bodies and their sexuality. And like when you're looking for that platform and you're like, oh, well, this is something that I have. This is an advantage I have. It's like at one, one level, there is this conversation around like empowerment. You know, I've, I've been thinking about this a lot in terms of like how you dress in your beauty and like your sexuality. If you've experienced like sexual assault, for instance, and like internalize that being your fault and you're like, oh, this was my fault. I brought this on myself. There is something kind of really important about like that woman being like, I'm actually going to dress really sexy and I'm going to be really sexy. And like, that doesn't define me. And that doesn't mean I like deserve violence. And so there is this like genuine, I think, relationship women have to their sexuality and their beauty where it's like, I have to be as beautiful as possible and know that I can do that for myself. It gets really nuanced, I think, because it's definitely not how I've built like my personal like brand or you do, you have to build your own personal brand and like I try to really focus out on like on humor and like something else, but I'm beginning to really examine like just the complexity of like the positions that we're put into as women and like wanting to have a voice. Well, I think the fact that you're funny and you do have a voice is one of the reasons you're on this podcast where I think the women who are just putting butts in photos don't really go on podcasts because they don't really have anything to say. And they usually have managers speaking for them. And it would so be, think, but it would be funny if they talked out of their butt. <laughs> it would be a funny video, but, but, you know, I think there's something to survival instincts, which is like, you know, maybe you and I both use our humor to just kind of like get attention and, but it's also like, it's, it's something natural. And it's just like, you know, a fish swims, a funny yeah. woman, funny, like, it's just in your DNA where like some women are not that funny. And yeah. Or have a different have. attention mechanism. Yeah. 
it's like to each his own. Whoever's survival mechanism <laughs> works for them. Mm-hmm. You can't judge somebody for doing that. That's just like their thing. Like, you know, if there was like a whole world of Kim Kardashians or like, you know, like somebody else's, like it just wouldn't work. And like, that's why there is a balance. But I do think that Kim Kardashian is a genius. I'm fascinated by her. I want to have her on the podcast one of these days. She's going through some law program right now, trying to become a lawyer. I think she's, she just keeps on reinventing. And it's like, it's like, whoa, what's this going to be? And I think in order to get to her position, you have to be really, really smart. Yeah. And I also think it, it was just like, culturally, there was this whole Paris Hilton is kind of like the original gangster when it comes to. Oh, I, she just liked one of my posts. I got to hit her up. Yes, uh, I got that reminds cool. me. I forgot. I forgot, forgot, forgot. I find her to be really interesting. I, she's just like an ultimate mirror of society. And I think that she wasn't as much of like an active participant in like her career and what happened. It was almost like she was just like in this place and then the world revolved around her in this way that I felt like was kind of like innocent. And with Kim Kardashian, there seems to be much more of like a targeted, like, oh, I have an agenda and like that agenda will be actualized. I think that those two women are are kind of interesting polarities of the same essence, you know, but they, they're different. They're very different, but they, and I think they used to be friends. It's like, they came from the same ecosystem. I think Kim Kardashian used to organize was her, assistant. Her, she was her assistant or something. She organized her closet and she made her money by selling Paris Hilton's old schmatas. <laughs> and uh she, she was like oh you have all this designer shit i'm just gonna flip it for you like she's just a businesswoman right even yeah. even as an assistant she's like i'm not bashing on women i think everybody's great i'm just really curious about how different people i guess get to whatever wherever they want to go to right because there's so many different ways yeah and like what's the ultimate objective you know is it personal glory? Is it like your legacy? You know, I think a lot about immortality, I think as a society, because we're so afraid of death, that kind of fear of death is something that is informing our everyday decisions in this like very like quantum psychic way that I think we tend to ignore because it's such a existential crisis. Like, oh, we're going to fucking die. Fame is how you achieve immortality. Like your physical body will die, but like we're still talking about Achilles or Homer. You know, this podcast will still be on the internet a thousand years from now. (laughs) Assuming that, yeah, the nuclear blast didn't destroy all of our uh, cell towers or whatever the fuck, the iCloud. I don't know how the internet really works. There's a network and it, it relies on electricity. We are the internet. It's just a physical network of brain neurons that we have in our own heads. I was trying to like figure out a way to start the podcast because there's just so much to your work. Everything is just so vast. What was your dream as a kid? Okay. This is kind of revealing. I wanted as a child to be a therapist (sighs) and I don't, really know why but like that was like I was like like all the other kids are like I'm gonna be like a vampire kitty that can fly and I was like I think I'm gonna be a therapist that does say something about like my upbringing and about like I think myself in a in a deep way but that was my childhood dream did you have like office hours as a kid where you're like mom and dad (laughs) I mean that's funny that would be another funny video no I just I think like 
I think at an early age, like I understood the concept, like of our, our own, like mental torture. Like I just, I wasn't the average child. Like I couldn't like playing was always like really difficult for me. Like I remember my brother was like really into imagining and he would like hold a toy and then let that like toy would like fly. And I would like always like pretend to play. I was like, I don't fucking get it. I wonder if I ever really like experienced childhood. I think I was like one of those, like just like adults, like waiting for it to be over. That was similar to mine. Like my consciousness kicked in hard. The eight years old, I just like, I was basically like a 30 year old woman. Like I just understood how life works. Yeah. And, and it, it just sucked being trapped in a my body, body in a child's body. Cause I spent most of my time around adults too. And it wasn't until I was like 15 and 16 where I was like, oh, I have freedom now. Now I can do things that I want because I, I already knew what I liked. I knew what I didn't like, but I didn't have that freedom. And I think American kids have childhoods, you know, like yeah. I'm Russian. So there's no childhood in Russia. It's like, oh, yeah, <laughs> I'm Hungarian. So you are. Similar. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. So the concept of a childhood is like just so different. Like my grandma had to go to work babysitting other kids at the age of eight. So like, I was babysitting at eight too, eight and nine, twins, infants. Right. And right? people were like, oh yeah, she's a good babysitter, this eight-year-old child. And I was like very responsible. Right. I mean, at eight years old, it's kind of like, okay, like, you know, like when those like babies pop out of like deer or something or horses, like a horse can mm-hmm. already like get up and gallop. Like that's how it is. It's like we're just like, that's what you do. So so as a baby therapist, <laughs> as a child therapist, did you like play games? Like did you make up things, like scenarios? You were like, okay, this is gonna be a crack baby that I'm like helping resolve. <laughs> no, I, I think my actual patients were like the human beings in my life. I spent a lot of time with adults also, but like would have really deep conversations. Like my grandmother. I really like knew about her in a deep way. I asked a lot of questions. And then with my friendships, I was, I always had really intense, close female friendships. And I think I spent a lot of time psychoanalyzing my parents too. It's funny that my whole adult life is like imagining because I didn't have an imagination. And like, yet I'm a writer and a filmmaker and like, I'm constantly in the world of imagination now. I think I like grew the opposite way. Oh my gosh. I think I remained a child too. I think that's interesting because as a kid, I didn't get to have this much fun. I I was like, I just didn't have the opportunities. I was was a little adult. And now when's your birthday? I'm a Taurus, April 27th. What are you? Capricorn. Capricorn. That's a good one too. I have a friend who I had on the show. Her name is Lisa Levy. You should check out her work. She does something called psychotherapy live where she turns it into a, a public performance and people like just like come up on stage and she like analyzes them. <laughs> dream. Uh, this is a fucking dream. I love you it. And I, love I think you guys would get along so well. Her and I recorded a podcast last summer. It's on Facebook, but I haven't converted it in, into an audio stream yet. How did therapy bring you to making videos and telling stories? Is it I went to college in New York. I went to Sarah Lawrence, which is progressive and... Well, you got a philosophy degree in it. Yes. I Googled you. I know my shit. (laughs) Got it. So I majored in philosophy and in dance. And after I graduated, I don't know, I kind of came of age during like the birth of internet conspiracy world because 9-11 happened in 2000 and one and I was 21 when that happened. And then there was just like this whole 9-11 truth movement. 
And I think it was like that coupled with like being in college where I started to just like question everything, you know, I was like, what is the official story? What does that mean? Like, wait, there is another side to history that like, I haven't necessarily been exposed to in my, like, um, I went to a very specific academic school in like Cambridge, Massachusetts, that just like the way that they taught you history was like the North knew slavery was bad. And that's why we ended it. And it was like, it's much more complex. And there's, there was a simplification I found, even though it was like a very academic environment. When I graduated college, it was like right around the 2004 election was coming up. And I just was like, oh my God, this is a huge deal. I thought that the first Bush election was like obviously corrupt and the voting machines and Diebold. And I was like really into that. And I was like, uh, we have to do everything. We have to make sure that Bush doesn't get elected. And I was like a political activist. And I worked with all these groups about voter engagement and getting young people involved. And like, I was convinced I was going to make a difference. I was like, we're going to get Bush out of office. And my party in Brooklyn is going to be part of the revolution. Like I was so naively passionate and also just convinced of my own ability to like mark the territory of politics. And then when Bush got reelected, I was like, Oh Jesus, now we're all going to go get guns and the revolution will begin. And like, I'm ready. And then it was just like, life just continued. And I was so shocked. I was like, what? We're just going to keep going. And like that really fucked with me. And like, I became like very disillusioned Then I decided that like, okay, if I'm going to like enact major social change, it's going to be through business. And so I wanted to start an organic fast food business. And I was like, I'm going to rival McDonald's and it's going to like change the world because food politics, it deals with immigration, it deals with environment, it deals with race, it deals with health. I mean, like I felt like this would be the ultimate coup to like fix the world. Don't forget about it. Food is very political. What you eat, I mean, I think Alice Waters has a quote that's like, what you eat is a political act. And I I truly believe that. Again, it's like I was very ambitious in my 20s and like had a lot of energy and just not a lot of experience in the world and how it worked, you know? But like, I think the ideas were really good. I was like, oh, I'll have a nonprofit and that nonprofit will complement the business and we'll have a local food guarantee and we'll support local agriculture. And I just like, I had the ideas, just like not the business savvy way of like, and also it's like, I kept um, meeting with businessmen who would tell me they were interested in my project. I had a partner and he was male. And like, so we'd meet with these like hedge fund people, you know, they'd get my number and then they'd try to meet with me to like talk about the business. And then they would like try to fuck. And every Mm -hmm. time I was like, what? Like I never, (laughs) I never got like hip to it. I was like, oh, this is, I kept thinking of myself as a human and then I kept, yeah. I kept transforming into a pussy and I was like, <laughs> Isn't and just, that the worst? I mean, you it think was you're really, you're just a vagina. <laughs> you're just a pussy. And like, I was so sincere, you know, like I was like really talking about GMOs and they were just like, shut up bitch and put my dick in your mouth. And I was like, it took me a while to like understand like this was the paradigm I was in, especially dealing. I mean, like I tried the whole socially responsible investor world and I just couldn't raise the money. 
I'm like made a lot of really bad decisions. And then I was like really depressed. Like, you know, I had this big dream and I failed and I was a failed female entrepreneur and I felt like a big fucking loser. And then I found out I had a brain tumor and like, that was a bummer. And oh so I had, wait, you can't like, you can't just like skip over that. You can't be like, and I had a brain tumor. And then I had a brain tumor. <laughs> so, okay. So basically I had gotten on birth control pills at like a pretty young age. Cause I was having sex at a young age. And my mom was like, Hey, don't get pregnant. And like, there wasn't really like much talk about it. And I didn't really think about birth control. Like I wasn't really thinking about the physical consequences of like taking a pill every day for 10 years. And then eventually someone kind of was like, it's kind of crazy that you're on the pill and you're like so organic and into all this like natural living. And I was like, Oh yeah, I never even thought about it. And so then I stopped taking the pill and I didn't get my period for two years. And then eventually I went to a doctor who told me that I had a tumor in my pituitary, which is like your hormonal control center. The birth control pill directly impacts pituitary because it's like telling your pituitary you're pregnant all the time. I'm not going to blame the pill exclusively because obviously many women take birth control and like don't have those problems. But I do think that like for me personally and also like my own lifestyle and like I was smoking pot and like doing coke and taking acid and I had like a toxic, you know, relationship to men. Like there was so many other metaphysical, spiritual things happening that I think were part of my story. Just like, I'm going to calcify myself. (laughs) Yeah. It was like, you know what? How about not? That kind of set me on this like path of holistic healing. Um, their solution for me was hormone therapy. And I was mm-hmm. like, that feels crazy. I was just like on hormones my whole life. Basically, it was like during that time I had like failed in my business and like YouTube was kind of like blossoming that I started making videos as like a way of healing. But that's amazing. You healed from it. I know it's pretty crazy. I did a lot of different things. I did like the master cleanse, you know, I like drank ayahuasca with shamans. I like did sound healing. I think I like paid a guy to like watch me sleep once. I tried a lot of things. And then I I did a 10 day silent meditation retreat and I felt like that was like really powerful. And they told me I would never have children. And then I got pregnant not long after that silent meditation. Wait, do you have a kid? You have, you have a child? Yes. Yes. She's nine. Oh my God. That's amazing. Cause I was looking on your Instagram and I was like, I think you have a child. That's amazing. Yeah, that's really cool. Down there. Yeah. Oh, that's really cool. I have a blog too. And I like blogged about my whole, like I used to blog every day about my parenting journey mm-hmm. for like many, many years. That's really cool. You know what I'm realizing? My business partner for fun dreamer, she had a brain tumor as well and her pituitary gland prevented her from having kids. And then whoops, one day when she was like 44, she was like, I, I can't have kids. And then like, she now has a daughter and she's so happy because she didn't think that she's like, it's like a miracle baby because the doctors were like on the drugs that you're taking for the cancer and, and everything else. Like there's no way you're ever going to get pregnant and surprise the body works in mysterious ways. Wow. That's crazy. And at 44, that- that's not and at 44. Yeah. Right. Wow. Interesting. Fertility is like a, that's like a big conversation in the female experience. Yeah. But that goes back to like why the powers that be want to control women because it's all about fertility and like keeping this thing going and creating more workers and creating more people and consumers. More men. (laughs) Creating more men. Well, no, they need us. (laughs) They need us. It's not China. They need us. (laughs) 
but they like the men there because they're bodies of war and yeah you know we live in this like world and like often wonder what life is like on other planets if there's like just a dolphin planet or like an all lady planet where like like what other worlds exist if we exist surely somebody else must exist we can't be the only ones in the universe i think about that a lot yeah me too but also it's like the isolation of our consciousness is interesting and i think it kind of is like mirrored by you know the individual relationship to the self is like you are your own entity and therefore i feel like the earth is mirrored that it's like the earth feels like its own entity because it's like that's how you kind of like contain your consciousness is by having a sense of self well you're your own consciousness right you're your own planet i'm my own planet but together we exist in like a universe (laughs) yeah yeah so i wonder if the earth will ever talk to other (laughs) earth-like places well maybe our consciousness is our frequency right like i'm communicating with you right now on a frequency through a channel right But in the end, we connected because we share a frequency and there's something electronically, which is technology communicating us. And maybe that we're finally becoming technologically advanced. We're going to create this frequency that allows us to connect and talk to other people like like phone calls. Right. Like you got to build one phone here and you got to build one phone there and then everything is connected. Like it's almost like satellites. Right. But (laughs) it works on this planet because we have the same physicality right but like we don't know what exists out there it can be in a different dimension so like i can't squad cast sirius b or mars or whatever because or the they palladian have, system yeah or the palladian system because they're operating in a different frequency it's like even on earth we have fish in the ocean and they live in a totally different dimension in a way because we function in oxygen And they function in water and like, I can't call up a fish and I can't communicate with a fish, but like fish have their own consciousness and they have their own huge life, but it's totally different from us. It's a totally different life form. And this got really crazy and deep really fast. (laughs) I, but I, I get it. I mean, this is every conversation I have. Like I'll try to be like small talking and within like four and a half minutes, I'm like rape culture, you know, (laughs) like they're like, Oh, (laughs) get away from this one let's get away from this one but um so you started making these videos and i loved your i loved your stand-up video about how like only 60 percent of women orgasm and how you want like equal (laughs) opportunity for women (laughs) well i mean that's legit a true story because like i have always just like been an easy to orgasmer and like it really the, the person doesn't matter you know, like I'm not, a, it's like, I don't fantasize about a human being. Like if I'm thinking about a human while like masturbating, I'm like, Ugh, get out of here. You're ruining this for me. Like, it's a very physical experience for me. And so like, I like had this like actual jihad, you know, where I was like, oh, I'm just going to like have sex. And then the second I'm done, I'm just going to go, I'm just going to get off. You know, like I don't owe him his orgasm. If I go first, like I'm now done, you know, cause it never, you know, unless you can like really get into it for the second one, you kind of are like, uh, I'm done. So it's like when you really love someone, you may like want to like, all right, I'll hang in there till you're over. But I, if I wasn't in love, I'd just be like, okay, I'm done. And then he would be like, what? And I'd be like, yeah, <laughs> namaste, you know? 
I'm done now. Well, it's just so funny because I think that's how men operate. You know, they're just in it for themselves. And like most, I mean, like if if you're in a caring, loving relationship, it's not like that. But like when you're younger, it's like that sometimes. You know, I've been with <laughs> many men who are operating by themselves for themselves. And I've been with many men who like, who find genuine pleasure in your pleasure. And like, right. God bless, goddess bless those men because I'm not even like that. I'm like the most selfish lover I've ever met. You know, like I'm like the fucking worst, but I think that's because I'm really giving in my life. And like, it's so funny to me, like men that want to have sex with me. I'm like, it's not what you think. Whatever you think, it's going to be a huge fucking disappointment because I am not going to put on a fucking show for you. Like, I'll give you a blowjob on your birthday, you know, like if you're good. Like, I'm just such an asshole in that realm. So luckily, every once in a while, I attract such like a sweet, sensitive man. And I'm like, oh, you're great. But I've, you know, I've had the plenty of dickholes who like don't give a shit. Oh my and God. I'm like, guess what? I don't give a shit about you either. So, haha. <laughs> <laughs> right? Well, you hope with every relationship, you help each other's consciousness evolve, right? Of course. Yeah. I mean, you hope, you hope, because I think in the end, we're all just byproducts of people that we've dated in a weird way, in good ways and in bad ways. Like, people leave their, like, consciousness and their residue on you, and it kind of stays in a weird way. Yeah, totally. And I think like as a young woman in high school, you know, there was this like real paradigm of um, men or boys using girls. I internalized that in a really deep way. And I saw a lot of my friends get like really hurt. And I was just like, I'm not going to ever let that happen. So I think like I like built up a veneer of just like, I'm not going to let some fucking dude break me. Not that I've never been hurt by men before. I 100% have like my whole life. I'm sure. hurt by men. Yeah. I think, I think it goes both ways. I don't think sometimes we realize the damage that we leave on other men, just like totally. the men don't realize the damage that they leave on us. Yeah. And I think there is like a real like power element in relationships that like, you know, in my thirties and in my current relationship in my marriage, it's like, the, the, the power dynamic is about partnership. You know, we're not like, I'm not looking to overpower him, but I think most of my life, it was like, I didn't want to feel on the bottom. Right. And that's like yeah. the existence of women, right. Where you're always like at a disadvantage. You're like, does he like me? Oh, I hope he likes me. Oh. And it's because there's so many women, there's so many more women than there are men in a weird way. There's so much competition from women to women too. Well, yeah. And also it's like, you know, it, it's interesting, like a guy with confidence, you know, or that has money or that is good looking. It's like he can get a lot of women and like him knowing that kind of makes women disposable. Yes. You know? yes. And I don't, I don't know. I mean, like, I think there are ways in which I've definitely treated men as if they were disposable and honestly felt like they were. And I wonder, I, I personally think it's like, there is the the brainwashing of like the patriarchy that exists. And like, I'm just as much of a victim of that brainwashing as we all are. And like, I think I was reacting against a paradigm rather than trying to find like my own authentic relationship to it because that's so difficult. You know, it's like, it's so difficult to not be brainwashed because we all are. So, mm-hmm. well, the men are brainwashed into their patriarch 
practical. We all, everyone, you know, women, women uphold the patriarchy with just as much fervency, you know, Mm -hmm. there is no finger to blame or finger to point or whatever. We're all to blame. Blame that finger. (laughs) Yeah. Blame that fucking finger. So I guess like, (laughs) I think a lot of my relationship activity was about rebellion. So yeah. So that whole comedy bit was like just rebelling against like an inequality that I thought was existing in my twenties. I was also like living in New York and like connecting to men who like didn't worship me. You know, they were like, whatever, you're one in a million. And I was, I was one of a million, not one in a million. I was one of a million. We all, and especially in New York, like New York is awful. New York is, I was treated like that. And I was like, what the fuck's wrong with you? You know? But then I was like putting out the same vibration ultimately. So, yeah, but also like on a New York level, like New York is a collection of badass, really smart, fucking on it, beautiful women. You know what I mean? New York is a different thing. Like you're a goddess and New York is like a place where goddesses go. Like if you're a goddess and you go there for a few years and then you can't stay here forever. I think that if you stay here forever, you just go fucking nuts. Like all the people like just, they just go nuts if they stay here too long. It's just too much. It's really hard. It's, it's a lot of ego and it was really humbling. Like I remember like I had a hard time connecting. I think like I got, I, I really took advantage the concept of someone like being in love with me because I was like really easy to get along with. It's like I made being in love with me easy as like almost like a defense mechanism of like fear of rejection. So like I was really easy to get along with. And like when I was finally single, I'd had been in relationships like most of my life. And I was like, you know, on my horror tour of 2007 and just like feeling really um, <laughs> disposable and just like unclear like where I stood. I then it was then that I started like understanding like how you could be obsessed with somebody that like really wasn't interested in you. And like, I was like obsessed with this one guy who was just like such a dick and like had a girlfriend, but I didn't know when we hooked up, but I like, I found out cause her and I happened to be like strangely Facebook friends. And then like, I just became obsessed with her and like literally stalked her Facebook like every day for six months. Like it was fucking nuts. You know, I was like, who have I become? Right. And I, it's interesting how like the, the ego and the rejection of New York, it's so humbling. And, but it was so important for me to like have that experience to understand like why a woman would be self-destructive because I was just so psycho. And then there was like another guy who owned a bar and I would like walk outside of his bar all the time, like hoping to run into him, even though he was like so (laughs) over me. And I was like, oh, I'm going to run into him. And then what? He's going to not be over me. It's like, no, he's over me. Right. <laughs> you know, like, so it, it like, yeah. New York is like a giant high school in a way. It forces you, like, it's all like perpetual kids. It's such a weird thing. But I really love how you use comedy to just like rebel against all of it. And like, I love the fact that you talk about cannabis openly, which is great. That's one of the reasons I, I started watching these videos. I'm like, these are so fucking funny. Like, they're just funny. And there's something about cannabis and conspiracy videos that goes together. Like, you just, when you smoke cannabis, like, your mind just opens up and you start questioning things. And you're like, well, that's not really the way it is. <laughs> yeah. And, like, for me, has become, like, I used to be the kind of weed smoker. Um, you know, I started smoking when I was, like, 14. Th- for, yeah, 14. And, like, it was in my early twenties that I just like became an everyday weed smoker. And it was like, you know, it, 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 it's a lifestyle. It's a lifestyle to smoke weed every day. 
when I was dealing with my tumor and stuff, and then I had a kid, I took a break for many, many years. And then I started up again about a couple of years ago. And it's been like such a magical force in my life because I don't smoke every day. And like when I smoke, I smoke alone more than I saw. I have like my friends who I smoke with, but I smoke alone a lot and like go for hikes and like just have so much fun, like in my it's own so head. Fun. I like to smoke and get into a bathtub and write and read. And then oh, I yeah. Like writing sessions in a bathtub where like the water channels and like you're just relaxed and all these ideas are flowing. It's been like really honestly like shamanic in a certain way. Like I have a lot of gratitude and I, and I'm so thankful that I can have this kind of relationship with weed that feels like really sustainable and it feels like healthy. Like it's adding to the value of my life rather than like when I was like smoking every day, I don't think I could like actually truly appreciate it. Like I would be like, I would never even like get in a car, like a car ride without taking a bong hit. I'm like, why would you be in a car ride without taking a bong hit? That's ridiculous. You know? (laughs) So like, I don't feel that same, like, you know, like you don't have weed and you're like, Oh my God. And you like flip the fuck out. I have like a relationship that feels like so tender. So I feel really like grateful to that. I didn't smoke until I became older, like thirties because a kid, I just, I was, I was always so busy. And then I started working in advertising and I found it as a really nice way to like decompress because I was so stressed. And then uh, my cramps, my PMS, just everything, just the older I got, the more I'm like, oh, CBD is wonderful. Like, this is just yeah. another way to release. Like, people are drinking people are drinking wine at work, and I'm like, ew. Like, people are like Jack Daniels, and I'm like, why is, like, alcohol legal and, and cannabis not? Like, it's just, it's just a different way. It's the discrimination. It's just a oh. different way to relax. So, I mean, like, the thing is, is, like, I've had a lot of really fun times drinking, but I've never been like, what's the government up to? You know, like after a few beers, it's an escape where weed, I wouldn't say that. I would say weed is a magnifying glass. Weed is a magnifying glass. And I think you start seeing things from different angles and it's a really artistic relaxation device. I think if you're an artist and I think if you're somebody who is curious and creative and you know, you're interested in the world and you're interested in yourself. It's a way to go out and it's a way to go in. Yes, exactly. It's like so ridiculous to me, like how seriously I take my comedy. Like I'm like such a fucking dork. Like I work so hard and I write all the time. And I had this experience recently where like I got invited to like pitch this idea and at this like festival and I like was like, oh yes. I was like, I worked so hard on my pitch and I had like my PowerPoint, my two minute, my five minute, my eight minute. And I was like really nerdy about it. And then like the girl who ended up winning, like basically was drunk and like, she like had nothing prepared. And like, she had like a vampire movie idea. And like the guy who was like judging it, like had a crush on her. And I was like, so devastated. I was like, Oh my God. I'm like, I'm so ridiculous. I take my comedy so seriously. And it's like, so nerdy. It's like, weed will help me laugh at myself about all these things. Like all these moments where I'm just like, so depressed or so down on myself or like taking everything just like in this like really specific way. And then like I'll smoke a joint and like go outside and I'm like, what is my fucking problem? (laughs) It's a self-regulator, right? (laughs) Completely. You know, I'm like, God, fucking mellow the fuck out, dude. So I I don't know. It's been like really crucial for my like sanity because otherwise I'm just like 
a little too intense. I'm pretty intense too. And that's why it's a nice way for me to melt. Like people I've had ex-boyfriends be like, you're fucking intense and I can't deal with it. Like I'm a special, I'm a special breed. I know it, you know, like I'm, I'm fucking intense and it's a way to just chill out and be normal. But I don't really like being normal that much because normal people don't get that much shit done. Yeah. Yeah. Or you're not, it's funny. It's like the drive of the, of the creative or the artistic person. Like, it like gives so much meaning to my life. You know, it's like every moment, every interaction, it's like, if I have a great conversation with someone, I'm like taking notes on it constantly for like a stand-up set or a video I could do. Life is content. And like, that gives my life a lot of meaning. But then in this other like weird way, it's like the constant drive and ambition that I'm always feeling is also its own prison. You know, so it's just kind of interesting, like the creative or artistic person. It's like, on the one hand, it's so freeing. And on the other hand, it's like a jail I put myself in. My old acting teacher used to say, Dina Levy, she's phenomenal. She used to say, you are your own prisoner. And I was like, yes, Dina, like I am my own prisoner in so many ways that I create for myself. And it's like, just bust out. Yeah. And it's hard because it's like, I want to be totally process oriented all the time. Like my objective is like, just make the art and enjoy the process. And like, who cares what happens? I really, you know, I try to embody that, but it's challenging because, you know, you also have to be like results oriented and you have to want to finish a product. And that, I think for me personally, that tension of like process versus product is like probably the deepest conflict of my personal happiness. But I think those are the people who do take it seriously. That's how they operate. I think when you start really looking at the ways Dave Chappelle writes jokes or Jerry Seinfeld, you know what I mean? I'm sure Jerry Seinfeld goes crazy about his stuff. You know, I think most comedy looks fun and it's like, oh, you just did that. But like it it requires a lot of thought and it requires a lot of planning and you got to work on the delivery and you got to test it. And there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of practice. But also comedy requires a lot of conversations and a lot of just like shooting the shit so you can get ideas because sitting around and just writing by yourself like that, that is only so much, you know, you have to get out. You have to be human so you can relate to humans. Yeah, connect. Yeah, totally. Or have a conversation with weed in my head. I get a lot of ideas that way. (laughs) Weed is a magical plant. It will tell you things. It will. Like ayahuasca. Ayahuasca is really interesting too. It's that was really- more about the self, but I I found that to be really profound. Mm-hmm. And I think in 2017, you were voted a comic on the rise by, uh, was it Broadway Comics? I forget what it was. Yeah. And then again in the spring. So 2017, 2019, Broadway Comedy Club. Oh, that's awesome. That's great. Yeah. So you're always writing and you always have ideas coming up. Uh, what are some things that you've been writing lately that you want to share but like i love the fact that your work makes the world a better place like it just does it just just like a social commentary and it's like you're like a walking stand-up consciousness oh thank you i really (laughs) i really try so it's like obviously i'm a little manic i have like a stand-up life happening where i'm doing stand-up comedy and most of that has been like concentrated in new york and so like i said i have that show coming up which is like my first like headlining show so i'm like super excited about that because um stand-up is so brutal it's such a journey of like the ego and like really annihilating the ego and like for me it's like really been a profound lesson of um connection and and not only like vulnerability, but 
you know, like what it takes to get someone who doesn't agree with you or doesn't necessarily like, like the look of you to be on your side. You know, I realized that like, you know, I, I perform a lot in like clubs where you have tourists, you have people with different political views, you have people with like really different social views. My personal opinions don't resonate with everybody. Like not everybody fucking likes me, but at the same time, if like I can really express my own vulnerability off the bat and like kind of find a point of connection, then like how can I bring people on board to like get them to listen to me, whether or not they agree with me or get them to laugh, even if they don't agree. So that has been like a really, you know, powerful journey. And then I've, I've like written many, many feature scripts and like pilots that I'm always trying to like prostitute out into the world. And the thing I have most control over is like my movies that I make and my sketch comedy, you know? So it's like, I have like these greater goals of projects that like I'm trying to get other people to fund, but then I always go back to like what I can do on my own. Cause like, I know how to edit. Like I edit all my own work. I film most of my work, you know, I, I do it all, you know, I write it and then like, I'll get people to act in it or I'll just act by myself. Like I've kind of created an ecosystem that survives just on my own effort. And like, that has been really, um, helpful because there's all this other stuff. Like I wrote a book and like, I'm trying to sell that book and I have to write the, you know, now the book is done. I'm like putting in a proposal and how do I frame it? And how do I make someone want to fucking trust me and deal with me? Like, all of that other stuff that I'm doing is dependent on someone else's approval. But like with the internet, I can just fucking make it and put it out there. And it's, you can self publish. Yeah. It's up to the world to approve or not, you know? Yeah. It goes back. Oh my gosh. this This is such a nice bookend to the introduction of the show, right? How we talked about how there are so many ways for creatives to just like create all this content, but then at the end we don't benefit from it. So the only way we can actually clearly benefit as creatives from the content is just us monetizing it and taking it all in-house, just becoming our own creative agency. And maybe, you know, you have somebody amplifying it. I mean, you still might need like a publisher to do it because you don't want to deal with printing like 10,000 books and distribution. But again, just being your own channel. But, I mean, yeah. eventually, you can, if you wanted to, if you build up a large enough team, you can have distribution everywhere. Yeah. So there, there is this way in which we have opportunities I would have never had. And so I'm really grateful to be born in the time that I am where, you know, and I have access to this technology, you know, like I can learn Premiere, I can learn Photoshop, I can learn all these things and like this technology that democratizes the playing field because it, it truly does. I am really grateful to be living in a time where I can just like say whatever dick joke I want and like get it out there and people can receive it or not because, you know, 20 years ago, that just was not the case. Right. There's so much that has changed in the last 20 years. And I think technology amplified the consciousness, but just being able to have this conversation alone through the internet is pretty phenomenal. And the fact that women are allowed to have conversations, that's shocking. You know, we weren't able to have these conversations. There's so many more female comics now these days too. And they're starting to get a lot more recognition as well, where it used to be like a whole male dominated field. Do you know my friend Esther Koo? She was on my show. Have you ever listened to Esther Koo? I would love to. You like her. Yeah, we have a podcast together. She's been doing stand-up comedy for a long time, and she's really funny. 
and it's a new paradigm now. There's a lot of there's a lot of lady comics and they're really funny. It's a good time to be a woman. And like it I is, I have a lot crazy. of gratitude for all the trailblazers before us that have been like working tirelessly for us to have these platforms because you know I am really humbled to like have the opportunity to like be like, Hey, I have something to say, listen, you know, and that's because of the work of other women in the past. Well, you know, you have women like Joan Collins, you have women like Carol Burnett, you have, well, I wouldn't really call, uh, what's her name? I love Lucy, Lucy Wall, a comedian, because she just, she just read other people's lines. She didn't write her own jokes. Like apparently people said that Lucille Ball was just like not funny in real life. Like she was, she was not funny, but she was able to deliver and she was able to act. Yeah. She was an amazing uh, actress. Yeah. yeah, She was an amazing actress, but like, like in her spare time, like she was not entertaining. She was just like chain smoke. She'd be like, (laughs) that's funny though. That is funny. It's, it's, it's funny because because you're on all the time. So it's yeah, like, like on. On. Yeah. yeah. Make yeah, your own choices. <laughs> yeah. She she expanded so much energy. But I think it is a wonderful time, as chaotic as everything sounds. Like, you know, the fact that you and I are able to talk about comedy and cannabis. Oh, we haven't even comp- covered compost. <laughs> uh, I know, right? God. Right. I feel so much like my self-esteem literally comes from my composting. Like every Does time. Well, like, you, live in, you live in Vermont. Like you have to compost. I live in New Hampshire, but I own a business mm-hmm. in Vermont. So it's like, we're close to each other. We're, we're spooning, but it's hard. I have to like network and I have to like go into the city and I have to like make people give a shit about me. Cause it, it's like, you live where you live in fucking New Hampshire. You know, it's like not cool. You're living free or dying. You're clearly living free or fucking die. Yeah. And it (laughs) is when you have a kid. I mean, like, it's a nice life. It's a wonderful life, right? You get to enjoy and you get to be, again, present with your kids. And you get to have a life, which I don't think a lot of city people have. They have, like, whatever they think is a life, but it's a hard life. It's incredible that you set up a studio. I love dance. Dance is also another antidepressant of mine. It's a really important physical and creative outlet. And we focus on adult education and like teaching adults and dance is wonderful. And I think if more people had cannabis and dance and community, I think a lot of the world problems would be solved because people would have a community, you know, creates a community space where people can express themselves as children and as adults and where children and adults can express themselves. I think it's wonderful. Yeah. And the language of the body, we store so much um, emotional pain in our bodies. And so dance helps you kind of uncover a lot of the repressed layers that you can't access through words. You can't, right? It's all in the body. You know, like you have to take care of your body because like your brain just works and like it neglects the, the physical body because mm-hmm. it's just like it just needs to get shit done and it uses your body to get shit done. But then your body is its own entity. And it's like, hey, I need more hydration. I need sleep. I need to be stretched. I need to be like moved. Yeah. yeah. So um, I get it's it. so important to, yeah. to have that balance. I need to probably go into a dance studio and, and boogie. There's so many good ones by you too. But I love your comedy. And I'm, I just wanted to connect with you because I think you're making such funny videos. And uh, they're, they're just fun. Like there are a bunch of channels that I like to watch on Instagram to just like decompress instead of reading books. <laughs> and uh and i just like your work i think it's great and i think you know i think you're doing a lot of work and i think it shows 
Thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate it. And this was super fun. And I liked getting to look at your pretty face during this whole conversation. Hey, maybe I'll clean up my bookshelf next time. Thank you. You're an angel. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, we'll do it again sometime. This was yeah. fun. Thank you so much for uh, signing on. <laughs> All right, bye. bye Thanks for tuning into the show. I hope you enjoyed it. Please share on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Dream Nation Love. It's not Dream Nation Podcast, it's Dream Nation Love because I think my single mission in life is to teach people how to love a little bit more and together we can save the world. So it's Dream Nation Love, share it with your friends, have a great day and go out and make the world a better place.